This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of heterotopic ossification from the pathology section on orthobullets.com. Heterotopic ossification is defined as formation of bone in atypical extraskeletal tissues, and it usually occurs spontaneously or following trauma. It also can occur within two months of neurologic injury, whether brain or a spinal cord injury, and it can also occur following total hip arthroplasty and total knee arthroplasty. The most common location for heterotopic ossification is between muscle and joint capsule. As far as the epidemiology, males are more affected than females in a 2 to 1 ratio, and heterotopic ossification is especially seen in men with hypertrophic osteoarthritis and women greater than age 65. As far as location, in the context of traumatic brain injury or stroke, heterotopic ossification is most commonly found in the hip, then the elbow, then the shoulder, and then the knee. Elbow heterotopic ossification is more common following brain trauma. Heterotopic ossification occurs on the affected or spastic side of a stroke, and it's rarely seen in the knee in the context of a traumatic brain injury. As far as heterotopic ossification in the context of a spinal cord injury, it is most commonly seen in the hip, then the knee, then the elbow, then the shoulder. Hip flexors and abductors are more commonly affected than extensors or adductors. It is also more commonly seen in the medial aspect of the knee in the setting of a spinal cord injury. As far as the pathophysiology, the exact cause of heterotopic ossification is not known, but there appears to be a genetic disposition. Experimental heterotopic ossification has been associated with tissue expression of BMP. As far as associated conditions, some orthopedic manifestations include pathologic fractures from decreased joint range of motion and osteoporotic bone, nerve impingement, soft tissue contractures contributing to the formation of decubitus ulcers, complex regional pain syndrome, which is more common in patients with heterotopic ossification, joint ankylosis, and heterotopic ossification after total hip arthroplasty. And it's important to keep in mind that heterotopic ossification after total hip arthroplasty adversely affects the outcome of total hip arthroplasty. As far as non-orthopedic conditions, skin maceration and hygiene problems are things to keep in mind in the setting of heterotopic ossification. As far as risk factors for heterotopic ossification, these include a high injury severity score, traumatic brain injury, spinal cord injury, neurologic compromise, other diseases that we'll describe shortly, decubitus ulcers, anterograde femoral nail entry site, distal femur traction pins, amputation through zone of injury, certain surgical approaches that we'll detail in a little bit, total hip arthroplasty, and total knee arthroplasty. So as far as the injury severity score, a high injury severity score increases the risk of heterotopic ossification to about 11%. As far as traumatic brain injury, there is a higher incidence of heterotopic ossification in the spastic limbs of the patient. And again, TBI also increases the risk of heterotopic ossification to about 11%. As far as spinal cord injury, complete spinal cord injury produces more heterotopic ossification than incomplete spinal cord injury. Cervical and thoracic spinal cord injury produces more heterotopic ossification than lumbar spinal cord injury. Younger age, that is between 20 to 30 years old, actually produces more HO, and there's a higher incidence in the spastic limbs of the patient. And in general, spinal cord injury increases the risk for heterotopic ossification to about 20%. 
as far as neurologic compromise in the setting of a prolonged coma in a young patient, again between 20 to 30 years old, and prolonged ventilator use increases the risk of HO. As far as the other diseases that we alluded to, burns, dish, ankylosing spondylitis, and hypertrophic osteoarthritis with prominent osteophytes are all risk factors for heterotopic ossification. As far as decubitus ulcers, the risk of developing HO is worse with concomitant decubitus ulcers and spinal cord injury or traumatic brain injury, and the risk of HO in the setting of decubitus ulcers with concomitant spinal cord injury is approximately 70%. With respect to anterograde femoral nail entry site, the risk of developing HO is worse with a piriformis entry point, and this risk is about 25%. As far as distal femur traction pins, heterotopic ossification in the distal quadriceps is usually seen in this setting, and there is a higher incidence in patients with other concomitant injuries, as well as in the use of larger diameter Steinman pins, that is approximately 5 millimeters, because of the hematoma and the soft tissue injury from the percutaneous insertion. Formation of HO is relatively rare with distal femur traction pins, but it is still technically a risk factor. Amputation through a zone of injury is another risk factor for the development of HO, and this is worse with a blast mechanism and can be seen in approximately 63% of patients. As far as surgical approaches that may increase the risk of development of HO, the extended iliofemoral has the greatest risk, followed by the Cochrane-Langenbeck, then the ilioinguinal approach for an acetabular fracture. And it's important to remember that the anterior approach has a greater risk than the posterior approach for femoral head fracture fixation. Overall, as far as surgical approaches, there's a 25% risk for HO development in acetabular fracture fixation. As far as total hip arthroplasty, there's an increased risk with psoas tenotomy and cementless components as more particulate debris and marrow spillage occurs in this setting as well as muscle trauma from the difficult broaching. Smith-Peterson and Hardinge approaches tend to have a greater risk than transtrochanteric, and the posterior approach tends to have the lowest risk of heterotopic ossification. There's technically a 53% risk of developing heterotopic ossification in the setting of total hip arthroplasty, but this is significant in only about 5% of cases. And finally, total knee arthroplasty, there's an increased risk of HO formation with notching of the anterior femur, surgical trauma to the quadriceps, distal femur exposure, and periosteal stripping, as well as post-op manipulation under anesthesia and a high lumbar bone mineral density. As far as classification of HO, the different subtypes include neurogenic heterotopic ossification, traumatic myositis ossificans, and fibrodysplasia ossificans progressiva, or Munchmeyer's disease. As far as presentation, the symptoms typically involve painless, loss of range of motion, interference with activities of daily living, complex regional pain syndrome symptoms, and sometimes fever. As far as physical exam, inspection may reveal a warm, painful, swollen joint. There may be an effusion. You may see some skin problems like decubitus ulcers from contractures around the skin, muscles, and ligaments, and also skin maceration as well as hygiene problems, as we mentioned. With respect to motion, you'll typically see decreased joint range of motion, joint ankylosis, and with HO after total knee arthroplasty, you might develop quad muscle snapping or patella instability. As far as neurovascular evaluation, you may see peripheral neuropathy as HO often impinges on adjacent neurovascular structures. With respect to imaging, 
Recommended views on radiographs include Jude views, which are valuable for the evaluation of hip heterotopic ossification. Findings typically include ossification, which is usually easy to visualize, and you may also find the maturity of heterotopic ossification, that is the appearance of a bony cortex, a sharp demarcation from the surrounding tissue, and a trabecular pattern. As far as sensitivity and specificity of using radiographs, they're not typically useful for early diagnosis, but they're only useful at one week after onset of symptoms, as calcium is deposited 7 to 10 days later than symptom onset. As far as ultrasound, the indications are for early diagnosis of hip heterotopic ossification, and as far as findings, you may see echogenic surfaces with posterior acoustic shadowing. As far as CT, it's useful for preoperative planning, and a triphasic bone scan is best for early diagnosis and is the most commonly used diagnostic study. As far as labs, you may see an elevated serum alkaline phosphatase that is greater than 250 international units per liter, and ALP typically removes inhibitors of mineralization. However, it is nonspecific and may be elevated with skeletal trauma. You cannot determine the maturity of HO with the alkaline phosphatase levels. However, if it's elevated 12 weeks after surgery, this can be a predictor. You may also see elevated CRP, which correlates with inflammatory activity of heterotopic ossification better than ESR. And you may also see that normalization of CRP may correlate with the maturity of heterotopic ossification. You may see an elevated ESR that is greater than 35 millimeters per hour and 12 weeks after total hyparthroplasty is the predictor. You may also see an elevated creatine kinase which correlates with involvement of muscle and the extent of muscle involvement. With respect to histology, you may see mature fatty bone marrow and mature trabecular bone in the setting of heterotopic ossification. As far as treatment, Prophylaxis may include bisphosphonates and NSAIDs, and although there's no literature to support this, they are commonly used. As far as the technique, indomethacin is most commonly used, and the dose is 75 milligrams per day for 10 days to 6 weeks. Perioperative radiation may also be used to treat heterotopic ossification, although just like bisphosphonates and NSAIDs, there's no literature really to support this, but it is commonly used. It is thought to be effective by blocking osteoblast differentiation. The technique for this is a single perioperative dose of 700 centigrades can be given either 4 hours pre-op or within 72 hours postoperatively. Less than 550 centigrades is typically not effective. As far as post-traumatic heterotopic ossification, wide exposure and surgical resection is indicated for severe loss of motion and decreased function. As far as the technique, wide exposure is required to identify all the neurovascular structures that may be involved. And as far as the timing of the resection, this is controversial. However, marked decrease in bone scan activity and normalization of alkaline phosphatase may be useful in timing of resection. Six months following general trauma is another rule of thumb that is used, one year following spinal cord injury, and 1.5 years following traumatic brain injury. However, some data suggests that there are equivalent results when comparing early versus late resection. As far as post-op, follow with a five-day course of indomethacin, early gentle joint mobilization, as well as irradiation. Finally, complications of heterotopic ossification resection may include hematoma and intraoperative bleeding, and it's important to remember that there's a higher rate of infection following joint arthroplasty if heterotopic ossification is present.
Other complications include fractures of osteoporotic bone, as heterotopic ossification can cause the bone to turn osteopenic from disuse. Fractures of osteoporotic bone may also occur during surgery or during physical therapy. Recurrence is obviously another complication, and the recurrence rate correlates with neurologic injury, as there is greater recurrence if there is severe neurological compromise. And finally, avascular necrosis may be another complication if extensive dissection or stripping is required in the resection of heterotopic ossification. That's all for this review on heterotopic ossification. Look out for questions related to this topic on this weekend's question session, and hopefully this episode will have prepared you for that review. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.